Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome everybody to day six of Surah Baqarah. It's a little bit amazing that um, we're day six. I don't know how many more days to go, but it's just wonderful. And um, I'm just so looking forward to another incredible session. We're continuing on with the ethical message of Surah Baqarah. Um, I just wanted to very quickly share a little gift that I got from my, my teenage son. Um, I'm always um, thrilled when at this age he shares anything with me because I know like at that age, you know, you don't really want to be talking to your parents and I feel really grateful when um, when he's in, you know, he's going through so many physiological changes that I know it's just part of part of growing up and it's of course hard for moms to be like, oh, my, my baby, my son doesn't really want to talk to me anymore. But so it's a, always a gift when he shares with me something that he's doing or thinking about and then even more of a gift when I realize, oh my gosh, this is extremely valuable then I can turn around and share with other people. So um, he was telling me today that he, or yesterday, that he was listening to a podcast um, by a Harvard trained um, Harvard uh, psychologist um, who does YouTube videos and he focuses on video game addiction, which is you know obviously a new issue for um, this generation and for you know our youth, it's it's a new field of study, um, and it was fascinating. Um, he shared with me just some of the things that he was listening to, and I got curious, and I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to listen because I want to know what he's listening to and spending so much time, um, you know, uh, thinking about. Um, so, and I wanted to share his name. I mean, his his YouTube channel is called Healthy Gamer GG. So it's very interesting. He's a young guy. I think he's probably in his mid to late um, 30s. And his story was that, um, you know, he's obviously very smart. He um, almost flunked out of um, college um, because he was playing too many video games and he slept through one of his finals. Um, and then by some chance, um, he decided to, he almost failed. I guess he had a very low GPA, like a two point something, and decided just on a whim, he applied to um, psychology, you know, programs across the country. Um, I think he applied to like 200 and some programs, got denied at all of them, and then just on a whim decided, well, you know, maybe I'll apply to Harvard and see if I can get in. Just, you know, what have I got to lose? So he did that. Because everyone else was too intimidated to apply, he ended up being the only one to apply, and he got accepted. They gave him a chance. So that sort of started this journey um, where he, you know, started training and learning about psychology and all this kind of thing. And then um, one day he decided he wanted to try and help people he noticed that a lot of people were struggling with video game addiction. And so he went to um, the people that he worked with, like in his day job, he's an addiction um, psychologist. So he went to these experts in the field that he was working with, people who were in their 50s and 60s, um, and asked them questions about you know, how to help people because you know, a lot of people were struggling with depression and inability to work and a lot of like sort of classical symptoms. And then it dawned on him that most of these people had never played a video game and they didn't even really know um, what that whole you know, world was like. Um, so he took it upon himself to just um, figure it out and started talking to gamers and, um, and realized that this is a completely new science, a new field that you know, people have different reasons for um, you know, playing video games. It could be you know, anything from just being excited about the game to you know, building a sense of community and even you know, dealing with life. Um, and so he learned that addiction is not even really the right word. Um, so it was a very complex science. It became very fascinating. So I, I thought, oh my gosh, okay, I want to I wanna listen to some of these videos. And I started listening to them and, and I got hooked. He was really smart, um, clearly has done um, a lot of work um, and you know has a very nuanced understanding of what 
you know, gamers go through. He's worked with, you know, professional gamers and just kids who, um, you know, are playing games all the time and, you know, having and, and talking to their parents, you know, asking questions like, okay, am I addicted to video games? You know, how do I, you know, what happens to me? What is even the neuroscience? What happens to my brain um, when I play video games? Why is it so hard for me to um, step out of that world and into the real world? And it's fascinating because a lot of gamers tend to be higher intelligence and higher IQ than the average population. And many of them were even from the time they were children, you know, like gifted and told by their parents, you're extremely smart, which led to an identity of I'm a smart person, which actually makes me want to avoid things that make me not feel smart. And so it's this whole very fascinating discussion. And I thought, you know, this is something that if you're a parent, you know, of young children, teenagers, you know, you're thinking, you know, or even if you're married to someone who's a gamer and having issues, um, this is so insightful. And I thought, you know, everyone needs to listen to these videos because it's part of our world. You know, we talk about systems of knowledge, about epistemologies of the age, things that are, you know, happening that are, are new and unique to our time. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, Pong was the first video game that I was aware of, you know, when I was my son's age. And I, you know, and he doesn't know that world. He knows a world, you know, he came into a world with the internet, um, very, you know, high level, like detailed, you know, games. It's just a completely different thing. And so it's a, it's a really valuable experience, even as a parent, to understand what does it mean for my, you know, child who really is engaged in this and invests a lot of hours in it. How is it changing their brain? How is it changing their outlook? And what can I do, um, you know, to you know, to understand um, how to either even help if there's an issue? So again, it's Healthy Gamer GG on YouTube. Highly recommended. Um, I just started, um, you know, watching. I've probably watched, you know, 10 or 15 videos. I'm going to continue to watch more, and I'll report back. But um, it's like, okay, this is new information that I felt was very, you know, it was very smart. Um, and and well researched. So um, you know, please share that with anyone who who knows. I asked my son, you know, are, do you know if any of your friends are watching this? And he said, no, I don't think so. I mean, thank God, Mito, you know, he has a very healthy curiosity. Um, and what was actually really striking to me is we we were watching one video of gifted children who you know breezed through elementary, middle, high school, like put out minimal effort because they could be very successful. They were extremely smart. But once they got to college, they were complete like failures. They didn't know how to do very basic things like, you know, apply for internships, work with a professor, any of that, because it was just something you know that they couldn't do. Um, and there were reasons behind that that this that this psychologist was able to point out. Um, and so a lot of them today, you know, as they, he was interviewing them, seniors in college, one. Um, a lot of them are sitting around doing nothing. You know, they lost their full-time scholarships because they couldn't operate in the real world. Another one decided to just join the army. You know, it's it's very um, fascinating, but I think also like very familiar. Like I just feel like if you know anyone who plays video games, um, or you know, parents of, of people, it's it's just very common experience. So Shmito said to me, yeah, you know, I'm watching these and I feel like this could be me in a few years. You know, he's in, in you know, 11th grade. And I'm like, well, you know, the point of watching this is obviously so that you're not like that. But he obviously recognized a lot of things connected with a lot of those feelings and situations and felt like, you know, this is, this could be me. And that's a very, you know, I mean, it's insightful, but also, you know, scary. So, um, Anyway, check it out and uh, let me know what you think, and hopefully, um, hopefully that will be of value. Spread the word because I'm sure everyone you know could um, use that, you know, 
education. It's, it's really important to, um, to be able to know what to do. Okay, I'm looking forward to another amazing session and thank you for joining us. Before uh, we jump into um, continuing with Surah Al-Baqarah, for, for some reason, um, um, Grace has been getting a lot of questions about um, um, she she noted that I pray on the surahs, um, especially I pray on which surahs to uh, cover. And for some reason, she's been getting a lot of questions about that. And um, to clarify this matter, it's it's fairly straightforward. Um, for many different reasons um, I did not want to cover the surahs in the order that the Quran is organized um, many Muslims do not start their journey with the Quran with Surah Al-Baqarah they start their journey with the Quran with the small surah in the 30th part in the Jut al-Thalathin in, in, uh, in the Quran. Um, but um, the practice that I've developed I mean, it's a long story but basically the practice that I've developed is that I pray uh, istikhara. And after I pray, I, whatever surah comes to my heart is the surah that I cover. Um, so when Grace is mentioning praying on surahs, that, that's basically it. It's a, it's a, it's a stakhara. Um, you, you're praying and you, and alhamdulillah, that has always happened after I pray that it, one surah or another comes to my heart, and that's the surah that I cover. Um, I'll say that the closer your relationship with Allah, the more you are prone, the more praying on, on things, whether you just pray the formal or whether you spend time with God uh, becomes a regular part of your life. It is not just something that you do over uh, one task or another, but pretty much something that you do over everything in life. Uh, I think people who are not accustomed to this type of relationship with their Lord, this might sound strange to them, um, but um, 
your relationship with Allah is never a one-way deal. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a two-way relationship. It's a reciprocal relationship. It's a relationship where spending time with your maker becomes very meaningful, and it becomes meaningful only to you. Um, uh, meaning that what the experience that you have is something that is specific to you, and it's not something that you should talk about, and it's not something that you should um, um, attempt to systematize or um, turn into some type of narrative, um, especially if you are your purpose is not to. Even even those who found tariqas and things like that, the most that they do is that they'll create a, a, a record of their awrad, um, meaning their, their dua or their prayers that they do when they convene with God, but that doesn't say anything about the experience itself. The, the experience is, is something else. It's... Um, um, those of you who've read the Conference of the Wokes might get a sense of what I'm talking about. Um, the the conference is half of it are supplications to uh, to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Uh, one final note: among the things that Grace mentioned um, in terms of these types of questions, I'm surprised that. Some people still think that it is possible to understand the Quran from a scholarly perspective, and they they compartmentalize scholarly approaches to the Quran from spiritual approaches to the Quran. There is no such thing. In my view, it is impossible to understand the Quran without both. There is no such thing as a scholarly approach to the Quran without being spiritually fully embedded in the Quran. The Quran, as I've said repeatedly many times before in, in a number of halakas, is a closed book to those whose hearts are closed. I don't care what amount of scholarship people possess. Um, if you, if the Quran doesn't speak to your heart and doesn't speak to your soul, uh, your intellect will never be sufficient for understanding what the Quran is saying. And the opposite is also true. Regardless of how spiritually advanced you are, um, your journey with the Quran is a purely personal matter unless you bolster this journey with a systematic study of all, what all the previous scholars have said about the text of the Quran. Uh, 
unless you are thoroughly uh, unless you are thoroughly uh, in mastery of the typical things the grammar the the uh, methods of interpretations the schools of interpretations the um knowledge of the history of tafsir um the an understanding of where each of the main mufassirun come from um your spiritual journey is solely a um is solely idiosyncratic and non-transferable and should not be shared with others unless it is anchored in scholarship. Uh, but disabuse yourself from the notion that there is anything such as a scholarly approach on the Quran that is not uh, also a spiritual approach. The, the, I mean, the Prophet ﷺ said as much as I've said in past halakas repeatedly. Um, but experience that illustrates this in ample ways. Okay, let's go on. So, where we left off, I think it was around verse 122. Um, just a quick recap for I think where where we left off. Where's the box of queens? That. As we said with 121, uh, I noted the, the um, the opinion of Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida, which was based on a well-known hadith that there are those who recite the Quran that it, 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 it is nothing more than um, uh, a, 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 a literal reading but that does not alter their, their moral being, does not transform their consciousness and Muhammad Abdu as I noted in the last halaqa that says that those who, the obsession, of course Muhammad Abdu, as again, as I noted, is, is building upon a tradition that pre-exists them, uh, that uh, obsession with the correct pronunciation, the rules of recitation, and so on, while ignoring the actual moral meaning of the Qur'an, and the actual uh, normative message of the Quran, 
is, as Muhammad Abdu puts it, like donkeys carrying books. The, the, the Quran is a text that is designed to transform the consciousness of its audience. And as we said, to produce a moral revolution within, and a moral, thorough, thorough moral transformation. And this is consistent with, as I, again, as I said before, that in Surah Al-Baqarah, the laying the foundation for our relationship to God's law. And Surah Al-Baqarah, as we said repeatedly, addresses this point of the relationship of the human recipient to divine commands. And when you scrutinize what Allah says to the Israelites in the long introduction to Surah Al-Baqarah, um, is that the way they received the divine commands was plagued by a number of failures. Some of these failures is a, a commitment to um, pedantic living, to materialism. Um, some of these failures is a a, an approach to the law that empties the law of its moral import and its uh, um, uh, of its actual meaning. So the, the 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 law becomes nothing more than a, a an exercise in ritualism rather than having anything beyond it. Some of these failures are is an uh, is a failure of faith and even sometimes a return to idolatry and so on and so forth. But as we said that the this discourse directed at the Israelites is intended to educate the newcomers on the scene, Muslims, as to what they must do about their covenant with Allah, what their role is with as recipients of the divine instructions and divine commands. And then, we, so we reached in 122 where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again reminds the Israelites, and as we said before, that you cannot fail to notice that if Allah reminds the Israelites of a favor bestowed upon them, if you are saying, I've given you my favor, and you in fact leave the door open by saying to a group of people, um, there are among you who can, there are among you who in fact do what is good and 
that are among you that who are um, in good standing with your Lord. That always, and the Quran's uh, uh, discourse with the Israelites, what is remarkable is that it is not an exclusionary discourse in the sense that it always leaves the door open that if the Israelites would return back to their covenant, it leaves the discretion, the ultimate decision of what to do about that, solely in Allah's hands. But the potentiality is there. As the potentiality for failure on the part of Muslims is always there, the potentiality for success with other than Muslims is always there. It takes a forced reading of the text. It takes truly a twisting of the arm of the text to somehow make the Muslims as the as the recipients of this covenant uh, as a position of entitlement that they can never lose because the Quran repeatedly tells Muslims that the Allah looks at the results. Okay. So then let's continue on with where we left because all of this is review. So, and as we see that that when in this is one twenty three, when Allah subhanahu wa taala reminds Israelites of the the favor and the blessing bestowed upon them, and says, and be conscious of the coming of a day when human beings shall not be able to avail one another. That again, accountability is specific and personal. And there is no getting around that. There are no entitlements, as we said repeatedly before, per race or per lineage or per anything else. But when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, remember my, my favor, you failed in these regards, but fear a day, you're, you're creating potentiality for the future. You're opening possibilities for the future. In other words, it's, a, it's not a message of uh, resolute, absolute exclusion. It's a, it's a communication about a past failure and a call for changing that pattern of behavior, f- fixing what has occurred in the past. And that what you'll find consistently is the tenor of the Quran with when it addresses God's covenant. And and then we get to 124, and if you remember, we've, je- we've skipped ahead to 124 when where I was talking about the historical foundations. 
because of وإذا ابتلى إبراهيم ربه بكلمات فأتمهن that Allah charged the Prophet Ibrahim بكلمات now بكلمات this is how Muhammad translates it Yeah, commandments. Bikalibat was a charge, was a trust, was commandments. And as I noted that some Muslim interpreters taking from the Talmudic tradition, they read the charge, the the trust, that sacred obligation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave Ibrahim in highly legalistic pedantic terms and as I said before that some said that the the ibtila or the the that charge that holy charge was things like um, uh, rinsing your mouth um, um, uh, cleaning your teeth uh, shaving your, your mustache, uh, some even, again from the Talmudic tradition, splitting your hair um, in, in a, a certain way, cutting your nails. That is a typical legalistic way of looking at God's covenant, precisely what the Quran says is the problem with the way that the Israelites handled God's, God's covenant. So it's rather troubling to find that some Muslim commentators took from the Israelite, from the Israelite traditions and thought that that is the charge that Allah gave to Ibrahim. And as people like Muhammad Abdul uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, Razi before Muhammad Abdu says that, recognizes that this comes from the Talmudic tradition, but Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida go further and they say that this is a clear corruption that comes from um, the, the wave of converts to Islam from Judaism that imported into the Islamic tradition many Talmudic uh, narratives. We understand that covenant, or that covenant, that ibtila, that Allah gave Ibrahim these kalimat, that Allah gave Ibrahim والسلام, is is explained in قَالَ إِنِّي that I am going to give you a role and the role is as the father of the faith. 
the father of monotheism. That is why it is impossible to understand our system of belief as Muslims without understanding the relationship between the Prophet Ibrahim and the Prophet Muhammad that it is a continuum it is the same anchored covenant that Allah keeps bringing back human beings to time and again but and I've noted this before but it deserves emphasis the response that we are told about in the Quran قال ومن ذريتي so the, the Ibrahim responds to to this by saying and my lineage and in this response قال لا ينال عهد الظالمين the unjust are by definition excluded from ever bearing the bearers of God's covenant. And as I noted before, scholars like Razi, like Mataridi, like Zamakhshari, like Muhammad Abdul, and many others across Islamic history. Muhammad Abdul goes, I like what he says about this because it's, he, he, he sums it up quite well that it is a condemnation of injustice in perpetuity, that a condemnation of al-zalimina min al-umara or al-zalimina min al-fuqaha, that whether you're talking about a prince or a king or any type of imam or you're talking about any type of scholar the injustice is by its nature incompatible with Allah's covenant and although those in power have managed to sponsor a great deal of traditions that communicated the precise opposite message. Those in power, governments, rulers in various ages in Islamic history, uh, were extremely troubled by anti-Zulm narratives, narratives that focused on injustice as a fundamental breach of the covenant with the Prophet Ibrahim and all prophets from there on. Because as and Maturidi puts it, when Allah says, لا ينال عهد الظالمين, that in this, دليل على عدم جواز طاعة الظالمين, that in this is 
proof that it is not lawful for a Muslim to obey the unjust, that obedience of the unjust is not just, it's not even an excuse that to say, well, I received an unjust command and I have acted upon it. But nevertheless, in, whether you're talking about the Amalek period or you're talking about the Abbasid period, obviously those in power recognize the, the theological risk that comes from opinions about the incompatibility of injustice to Islam. Whether they in fact were just or unjust or whether they saw themselves as just or unjust is not the issue. The issue is that you don't want to leverage this issue to laity. That even if you believe to yourself to be the most just ruler in the world, you don't want to empower those that you rule over to have the legitimacy of an opinion. Because you might see yourself as the most just ruler in the world, but what if they saw you as unjust? And, of course, it's not, it's, as, as I said before, it is, it is absolutely, I mean, if after 1400 years, uh, m Muslims have not grown up, I mean, it is just an issue of, of civilizational maturity to understand that power invents narratives. Power invents narratives. No power just exercises power without a narrative to accompany that power. There is no unjust ruler, unless they're insane, that simply does what they do without inventing a narrative that uh, tempers their exercise of power. And what I say tempers, meaning that either says well, that what I'm doing is good for you, what I'm doing is not that bad, what I'm doing is God's will, what I'm doing is uh, whatever, you know, what I'm doing is what your uh, forefathers always wanted. What I'm doing is what is needed by uh, pragmatic necessity. Power invents narratives. And part of growing up is to understand that the Islamic tradition went through the same thing. Power invented narratives that legitimated injustice or at least that addressed those who power is exercised over and told them justice or injustice is none of your business. I've referred this before as the mystifying of power. Is that you say power is a mystery. Power was given to me by God and there is a mystery of power that you as laity cannot understand. This is, this is just ABCs of historicism. It's everyone else other than Muslims understands this about the history of power. And then you say things like, you know, 
I am ruling by divine right. I am half divine. I, there is a divine will that aids me. Uh, I communicate with God. Uh, God sends me messages that no one else... Whatever it is, but power is a mystery to you who are outside the realm of power. And so, because power is a mystery, you stay out. You can't comprehend it. And you have no standing. Notice the legality. No standing to have an opinion about power and the mysteries of power. But what does that do to la yanalu ahdul The scholars in Islamic tradition who understood this had no problem saying the all the traditions about obeying a ruler even if this ruler steals your money or uh, whips your back or does whatever to you all the traditions about blind obedience to rulers just or unjust are traditions of power and they faulted al-muhaddithun defaulted the al hadith people for accepting the chains of transmission as they were handed to them because chains of transmission became a a a a, a, a technical professionalized matter People knew what were the golden chains of transmission. People knew what was a chain of transmission above reproach and a chain of transmission that is weak. And it is naive and immature to ignore the fact that power was able to fund individuals who slapped golden chains of transmission on power hadith and circulated them. And, you know, I've wrote a whole book that about this, you know, the rebellion and Islamic law, but <clears throat> I know this book is being translated in Arabic, although I don't know what stage it's in. But all of this, I mean, it's sort of a, 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 it is, it would be all very prim, a very primitive discourse and a very elementary and embarrassingly um, uh, simplistic discourse everywhere except the Muslim context. Only among Muslims is this issue controversial. Only among, I mean, I truly, it is like the only people in the modern age who accept this discourse are those who step out of the Islamic tradition and become quote-unquote secularists. And, and that's an embarrassment. I mean, how could it be that you can only access the morality of the Quranic text if you go through the path of non-religiosity, uh, it is uh, an absurdity. It, it, the, 
the morality of the Quranic text must be accessed through the path of piety, not the path of non-religiosity, whatever that means. Anyway, okay. So, Zulm is the antithesis of the covenant of Ibrahim and the covenant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from that point thereon. And all the traditions, all those in the Islamic tradition that, that, that said what we've talked about before, that Allah will aid a party that is not Muslim if it is just, but over a party that is Muslim that is unjust, comes from that basic anchoring point. That as Allah reminds the Israelites of why is it that they cannot continue to claim that they are, by definition, the chosen people. Allah is telling them is, that's not the point. The point is, are you among the Zalimin now or not among the Zalimin? That is the material point. That defines whether you are in favor with Allah or not in favor with Allah. Okay, the next thing we'll pause at is, and as I noted to you that in the biblical tradition itself, there, it, there is what survives in the Bible is the reference that I read to you about um, the well that Allah creates for Hagar and Ismail, although as the surviving copies of, or the, the circulated copies of the Bible don't mention the name Ismail. Um, so what, the, what follows when Allah talks about Ibrahim creating the house, that that anchoring symbolic point and I fully agree with Muhammad Abdu again in saying that it is no coincidence that right after Allah makes clear that the covenant cannot be given to the unjust, that Allah addresses Maqam Ibrahim, the, that, that symbolic point of the Abrahamic message that doesn't reach its culmination or its conclusion until the Prophet Muhammad But symbolic for what? It's symbolic for Allah's covenant with all that Allah's covenant entails. So 
symbolic and as we will see in a second when Allah talks about al-bir as in uh, Matridi says that symbolic in in summary for al-bir and then elaborating upon al-bir and as we shall we'll see what is al-bir that you believe you acknowledge where you come where you come from and you acknowledge where you're going to that ilbir is to acknowledge accountability that life is for a reason and the reason is to come to know your god and that and the accountability is haq it is truth what is ilbir iqamat as-salah Prayer is bir. Symbolic for what else? Symbolic for zakah, for taking care of the needy, taking care of the wayfarer. Symbolic for acknowledging the rights of those who are older and those who are weaker. Symbolic for also justice. So, when Allah وَإِذَا جَعَلْنَا الْبَيْتَ مَثَابَةً لِلنَّاسِ وَأَمْنًا وَاتَّخِذُ مِنْ مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّى وَعَهِدْنَا إِلَى إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْمَعِيلَ أَنْ طَهِّرَ بَيْتِي لِلطَّائِفِينَ وَالْرَاكِعِ وَالْعَاكِفِينَ وَالْرُكَّعِ السُّجُودِ Please understand all of this is coming after a long discourse with the Israelites about the nature of the divine command. So if you understand Tathir al-Bayt Nuttaifina Wal-Aakifina Wal-Rukkah as you are purifying the house so that people can simply do the ritualistic acts of off of going around the house and of i'tikaf of worshipping and rukka ruku' and sujood and nothing further then you've done precisely what the Israelites done the maqam ibrahim the bait itself is symbolic for all of that but also more it is symbolic for Allah's covenant there is a part of our tradition that unfortunately in modernity has um, if you survey the poetry written about Taiba, about the, the Muslims describing their feelings towards Mecca and Medina throughout Muslim history until the age of colonialism. I, I've, I've stopped my survey around, uh, I've 
didn't survey beyond around 1900. So I came to about the beginning of the 19th century and I stopped. But up to that point, one of the most um, things that really strikes you is that, yeah, a lot of people are writing about how orderless and risky the journey to Mecca and Medina is. But when they talk about Mecca and Medina, they're not talking about how beautiful the buildings are. The constant theme is that they describe that Mecca and Medina is a place where they encounter real piety, real kindness, real compassion, real mercy. Now, I'm sure, of course, poets exaggerate, but you can't fail to notice that the warm feelings that Muslims had about, especially Mecca, is that symbolically it is the place where you go to exercise, what, to, to experience what Islam is supposed to stand for. And when they would describe the worst periods uh, in Islamic history, they would talk about the, how not that people are anxious even in Mecca. So repose and tranquility in Mecca stood for the health for, of the Ummah. Anxiety and fear in Mecca was something that would often be described as evidence of the entire collapse of the Ummah, especially poetry written around the Mongol period and things like that, and some other periods, like periods of, well, anyway. But like the, the poetry that was written during the Karamita, the, the, the siege of the Karamita, um, but, you know, the, 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 way, the, the bemoaning and the, um, of, of the loss of the, the, how there, there is no uh, comfort or repose or kindness to be found in Mecca. This was during the period that the Karamata laid siege to Mecca. Anyway, that's a part of natural culture that Maqam Ibrahim, what would be the place that would, where people would experience, so Ibn Arabi, when he escaped Andalusia, for instance, he goes and stays in the Hijaz for years. And the writings of Ibn Arabi and the most beautiful poetry that you read is the poetry that Sufis wrote, especially Sufis, during the periods that they stayed in the Hijaz. But what interested me the most about this poetry is what they are saying about the people of the Hijaz, which is something completely lost in our age. I mean, even if we go to Umrah or Hajj, 
very few of us have any experiences with the people who live there. Or the people who live there are entirely irrelevant. What's relevant is the regulations of the Saudi government, the rules of the Saudi government, the people who lead the caravans of Hajj, the, the, um, the people who organize the trip for Hajj, where they take us, where they leave us, where they put us, where they move us. But this whole dynamic of understanding what Maqam Ibrahim is and what its symbolic construct is and that it is symbolically interconnected with the covenant that Ibrahim received and that continues on to Allah till the very final day um, is um, and of course this what I'm uh, talking about look at 126. So, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm tired. So, it's summed up in in um, Muhammad as what does he translate Amn as? Um, he just says secure. But Amn is make this this a place of peace repose security but as and I don't remember who was it that, it might have been the Makhshari who, who, who says um, can M is amn possible without justice? Is repose, tranquility, peace possible without justice? And the answer is, he gives, is obviously no. That part of Rabbij al Balad Amina, that God make this place a place of amn. A place of peace, tranquility, and justice forevermore. Okay. I don't know how I probably. Okay. So then let's move on to 129. This is continuing on with Ibrahim's supplication to the Lord. And Ibrahim when he says, 
make this a Muslim ummah, ummah and muslima, a Muslim, an ummah that is turned towards you, an ummah that honors your covenant, an ummah that surrenders to you, acknowledging that this world has a Lord, has Lord is the best way to put it. But, and a prophet that teaches them the book, one hikmah, the book and wisdom. It is no coincidence that the Abbasid library, the very famous Abbasid library during Harun al-Rashid was called Darul Hikmah the house of wisdom. What we often forget is when the Quran spoke about the duality of the book and wisdom. Wisdom didn't mean someone just sitting, an old person, an illiterate old person sitting somewhere thinking about their experiences in life and then say, well, let me give you some of my wisdom. Wisdom in the context of the Quranic revelation had a very, and this is, this is clearly communicated even among the earliest commentators about the, on the Quran that al-hikmah is al-ilm al-daruri, necessary knowledge. What was understood to be necessary knowledge at the time might be very different I mean, in certain respects. So necessary knowledge, mathematics was necessary knowledge. Grammar was necessary knowledge. Logic was necessary knowledge. In their time, they also believed that astronomy and astrology was necessary knowledge. And some of the most interesting discussions will say, well, the Prophet taught the book, but the Prophet didn't teach mathematics, and didn't teach astrology, and didn't teach logic, and didn't teach grammar. And what do you, the what you would expect the as you would expect the natural conclusion would be is that well yes but what the Prophet ﷺ taught is the necessity of mastering the knowledge of al-ilm al-daruri the the necessary knowledge of the age the iqamat al-adl. To establish justice, security, and truth. So whatever knowledge is necessary to establish al-haq, truth, and al-adl, justice, becomes part of al-hikmah. And that is precisely 
those who try to understand why is it that the Quran fired up a passion for knowledge as I, as I said before many times inspired the creation of these massive libraries in an area that had not seen the creation of massive libraries uh, the, the Near East area since the Greek civilization I mean, it's been centuries since the Greek were, Greeks were around. And when the Greeks were around, their impact was not felt in Arabia. Their impact was felt in Egypt and some areas of Mesopotamia. Romans penetrated to Bahrain in later periods but by the time the Romans are dwelling in reach Bahrain they're not interested in libraries and so that area in terms of the 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 area of the of Yemen Arabia uh, Iraq um, Jordan had not seen the creation of massive repositories of knowledge for centuries. If Muslims were writing their own history, they would ask the obvious question. How the heck do you go in a matter of few years after centuries of blank, a void, centuries where people have even lost track of the value of texts so many texts have been destroyed just through neglect to an obsession with knowledge and the answer is the understanding of the role of hikmah in the quranic revelation if muslims didn't believe that they were divinely charged to pursue al-hikmah and if they understood hikmah the way modern Muslims understand it al-hikmah is basically um, how to get a good deal on a car or al-hikmah is how to, I don't know you know, I, I find so many Muslims, you know, they, they, they brag about, they, they found a good deal on dates, and they found a good deal on batik, and they found a good deal on mangoes, and I mean, that seems to be like their, their whole, and uh, it's remarkable. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable because all of that is part of what Allah is telling us about why the Israelites failed in their covenant, and why Muslims now are going to be the bearers of this new charge. And yeah, we need to stop for Maghrib. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Notice um, one thirty. 
ومن يرغب عن ملة إبراهيم إلا من سفها نفسه. We we often read this and and um, pass by it without reflection. Um, where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, but who? Unless those safa is um, is weakness of mind, is idiocy, is um, but if if you really want to distill what safa is, is a failure to do justice towards oneself because of a failure in judgment or incapacity in judgment. And when, as an anchoring point for this new Muslim community, and Allah told us, who other than the Safi, who other than literally the dunce, the, the, the idiot, would turn away from Ibrahim's creed, Ibrahim's creed is in order to, uh, to, to fully appreciate Ibrahim's creed, you have to, as we have done, start with Surah Al-Baqarah everything that it tells the Israelites about how they failed in bearing the covenant. So, put it simply, the very idea of a chosen people, or the very idea of a privileged race, or the very idea of a privileged class, or the very idea of a people entitled to go, to go to heaven because they are of somehow a chosen whatever. is Safa. All of that is under the general rubric of what is counter to Millat Ibrahim. Millat Ibrahim. Because Ibrahim's creed is belief in the one and only God and everything that it entails. So, to put it closer to our legalistic minds, Tahara, purity, is part of Ibrahim's creed. No one can say that, oh, it is part of Ibrahim, it, it doesn't matter to Ibrahim's creed whether you're pure or impure. Purity, Tahara, because what is Ibrahim's prayer? Tahir bayti, purify my home. So we all can can relate to that. All the average Muslim relates to that. But if you come to the average Muslim and say, "Well, is pursuit of necessary knowledge of the age part of Ibrahim's creed?" Then they have 
a cognitive disconnect. Then they look at you and say, ah, re well, but, but it's clear. It's, it's really clear. And that's why Allah describes turning away from Ibrahim's creed as Safa. It is not just turning away from monotheism, but it's turning away from monotheism and all it entails. So, again, failure to honor your parents. That's turning away from Ibrahim's creed. Honoring your parents is part of Ibrahim's creed. Taking care of the orphan. Now here, we start getting the cognitive disconnect. How could we have, how many of us have ever visited a home where orphans live? Muslim societies are full of orphans. Full of orphans. And with what happened in Yemen and Syria and Libya, more orphans than you can imagine. Every time Israel unleashes on Gaza, more orphans. And it is, no, it is not a secret, it's not a secret that orphans are not taken care of. In fact, orphans, you just, unlike in the West where it is possible for journalists to visit mental institute or possible for people who grew up an orphan to publish a book about the what they endured in an orphan and I don't know if you've ever read any of these books written here in the, in, in the US that were memoirs by orphans but in Muslim countries there are none of these testimonials because there is truly a lack of care. I mean, I, I've known firsthand that an orphan who grew up as an orphan in Egypt and wrote a book, a memoir, about what he endured in the orphan, the, the amount of abuse and suffering, and just he told a horrific, horrific tale. And no publisher would publish it because they told him, who cares? That's not new. I mean, so what? It's not like you, it's not even an expose. Millet Ibrahim and the Safah of turning away from Il Millet Ibrahim is, is everything that it is encapsulated in what Allah teaches us about al-birr, wa-taqwa, wal-ihsan, all these values that we repeat but we don't reflect on. And that is why Allah describes it as a complete and absolute failure. It's like a non-starting point. But it is not Millet Ibrahim just saying, I believe in one God, and then ignoring orphans and ignoring the poor and uh, doing whatever you want in life. Including the magic word, justice. 
justice is part of Millet Ibrahim. Okay. Then let's move. Remember at 133, I just want to remind you of this. This is the scene where Allah talks about Jacob, Yaqub salam, when he is giving his testimonials to his last testament to his children to his children. And if you just remember the difference between the biblical narrative about Jacob's testimonials and the Quranic narrative. Muslims are often not aware of the the, the remarkable differences between the way the Bible talks about some of the same very events that the Quran talks about. Okay. So, no. This just deserves... So, right after the scene of the testimonial, أَمْ كُنْتُمْ شُهَدَاءِ إِذْ حَضْرَ يَعْقُوبُ الْمَوْتِ إِذْ قَالَ لِبَنِيهِ مَا تَعْبُدُونَ So, this is, as we talked about, Jacob asking his, his uh, children, who will you worship after me? And the, the response that we will worship your God and the God of Ibrahim and Ismail and Ishaq and a single God, and we are Muslims, and we surrender unto this God. Then, This reference that this is a past nation, and unto them what, what they've earned, and now the challenge is what you will earn was again a refutation of the idea that merit is defined by a covenant granted in the past to a particular lineage and that that's what matters because that was a very much a a a um a firmly anchored system of belief that, and it, in the same way, the idea that there are, um, you know, kings are entitled to be kings because they are chosen through a certain bloodline, and that that bloodline, there is something sacred about that bloodline, something special about that bloodline. The same idea was also at the the backbone of inheriting a covenant. And as I said before that it was deconstructed by the Quran. Quran. 
قولوا آمنا بالله وما أنزل إلينا وما أنزل إلى إبراهيم وإسماعيل وإسحاق ويعقوب والأصباط وما أوتي موسى وعيسى وما أوتي النبيون من ربهم لا نفرق بين أحد منهم ونحن له مسلمون فإن آمنوا بمثل ما آمنتم فقد اهتدوا وإن تولوا فإنما هم في شقاق فسيكفيكم الله والله السميع العليم صبغة الله ومن أحسن من الله صبغة ونحن له عابدون These ayat up to 138 It is some of the majestically beautiful um, narratives of the Quran that the Quran comes and anchors the entire message back to the original Millah, the original creed of Ibrahim and it is not about the the sort of the, the digression that Christians took the message to a, uh, a, a God sending a son to suffer for the sins of people to absolve people of their sins and to wash cleanse people of the original sin something that is completely absent in the Torah in the absent in the biblical narrative even in most of the Bible, I mean, other than the fact that the, in the Bible, Jesus never says he's God, and son of God means, the Bible describes many people as the, as the sons and daughters of God. But that's beside the point, this, for another matter. But anyway, that, so it is not the digression that the Christians took, and not the digression that the Jews took about a chosen people and and a people who inherit the, the 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 that sacred covenant with the sacred uh, tomb the sacred tabut that etc etc but goes back to this original pure creed and then tells muslims your path is to tell them clearly it is the same message, unwavering, unchanging message, from the time of Ibrahim salam to the time of Muhammad salam. So, the the I flagged Fasayak Fikum Allah one thirty seven. Let's see how translated. Um, yeah, it, it, what it means is God will, from, from a theological point of view, it is important because it, Allah is telling the Prophet at a time where it, this, this is, the likelihood is that this ayah is revealed after Uhud, but before Ghazwat al-Khandaq. And 
it is a time of great instability and insecurity. The Quraysh had commenced forming an, a massive alliance, massive Arab alliance against Muslims, and the fate of Islam from a practical, pragmatic point of view um, is really unclear. And for Allah to come, and the, the Quran clearly tells Muhammad and Muslims that Allah will protect you. It, it is, again, one of these things that it, it is an, a, a forward-looking assurance that in hindsight, um, we say, yeah, we know what happened, but it's a remarkable prediction of what will unfold in the future, which, again, I mean, it can only be God speaking, telling them, you will be protected. Uh, the other thing is, uh, this fasaq fikum Allah um, the, it is often recited in uh, rukyas uh, when um, of course what is intended when, when it's recited in rukyas that, that Allah will protect you against jinn so if it sounds familiar to you it's because, and if you've ever had a ruqya, that's why it's familiar. It is often recited by, although, I mean, anyway, it's, it's sort of co-opted into, into that field. Notice this most remarkable ayah that we often, Sibratullahi. وَمَنْ أَحْسَنُ مِنَ اللَّهِ صِبْغَةً وَنَحْنُ لَهُ عَابِدُونَ 138 صِبْغَةَ اللَّهِ It is such an amazing expression that normally translators don't know how to translate it. So translators will say something like um, This is God's hue. And what is more beautiful than God's hue? Or this is God's color. Or what is more beautiful than God's, God's color? Um, what does the study Quran say? Baptism. Baptism. Baptism? The baptism of God. Baptism? That's interesting. What do, the study Quran, is that the study Quran that says baptism? Yeah. Mm. They, they say another translation is the coloring of God. The coloring of God. Yeah. Because if Allah is describing khalq, creation, the, the created Quran, and then Allah describes it as as a sibha, then the meaning is clear. This is the creation of God and what is more beautiful than Allah's creation? But because Sibha is used here about 
a core backbone creed. And a creed that refers to our father Ibrahim السلام, and the line of prophets until the prophet Muhammad السلام, and then it is described as a beautiful sibra. That's why commentators or, or translators don't know how to exactly render it because the meaning itself needs vetting in Arabic. Because in what way is that a sibra? And in what way is that a beautiful sibra? And as sibra is literally a coloring, a hue, um, an orientation. Um, the best that I've read about this, and I don't remember, I couldn't, where it was precisely, I couldn't, didn't have time to find it again, it is in Abdul Jabbar's Muhni, where he says that when Allah describes this as Allah's Sibha, that the, that Allah is alerting you to that Allah's fundamental creed, that Allah's anchoring creed, the backbone of belief that all of humanity should look towards, and in fact, the backbone of belief that humanity should turn its face towards, is a creed anchored in what is Hassan, what is beautiful and what is good. And that in the same way that Allah describes, and this is not, this is my own extrapolation upon it, in the same way that Allah describes Millet Ibrahim and whoever deviates from Millet Ibrahim as the, the, the weak-minded or the dunce or the, and so on, that, that my view, when Allah uses Sibhat Allah, it must connect with Millet Ibrahim. And I completely agree with Qadi Abdul Jabbar that Allah is telling you that this creed is anchored in what is good, what is innately and fundamentally good. And what is innately and fundamentally good, we use words like birr and ihsan and taqwa um, to, to signify it, to signal it. But as Surah Al-Baqarah itself told us that Bir again goes back to these basic moral values like Al-Ihsan Lil-Walidayn, like taking care of Al-Miskeen, like 
taking care of the orphan, like taking care of the wayfarer. It, it, it's like iqamat al-salah, which is also part of it. So, this remarkable expression, Sibhat Allah, wa man ahsanu min Allahi sibha, wa nahnu lahu abidun. Your ibadah, you're anchoring yourself in al-ubudiyya lillah, is a moral commitment to what is beautiful and what is good. In principle, now, we, we are obligated to vet out, and that is Abdul Jabbar's entire Mughni project, is because we're obligated to vet out what is moral and what is good, Abdul Jabbar writes his, his corpus, his, his entire volume, but there is no way around constantly saying our ibadah is about what is moral and what is good. The journey to discover what is moral and what is good is often challenging, often marvelous, often intoxicating, often disappointing, often hard, often arduous. It's a many, it's many things. But there is no way around your commitment to ibadah is like your commitment to Millet Ibrahim being a commitment to the principle of Sibratullah. Notice, uh, we often um, this Quranic reference, uh, although uh, historically obvious, أَمْ تَقُولُونَ إِنَّ إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْمَعِيلَ وَإِسْحَاقَ وَيَعْقُوبَ وَالْأَصْبَاطَ كَانُوا هُودًا أَوْ نَصَارًا That Abraham, Ismail, and Isaac, and Jacob were not Jewish or Christian. Although, um, they have been sort of um, ahistorically appropriated into the, especially the Jewish tradition because you will often, if you, if you come to the average person, they might actually tell you, oh yeah, uh, Isaac was Jewish. Well, well, of course, that historically makes absolutely no sense. Or that Jacob was Jewish, and which again makes historically absolutely no sense. But that that obvious point, because even at the time of the Prophet particularly Jews claimed ownership of Ibrahim and of Isaac and Jacob. Although, obviously, they were even before. You could even say that there is Judaism or Jews or, or so on. But, so as a Muslim, it is studying about Isaac, Ishaq, or studying about Jacob, you're studying about your own prophets. Um, okay.
Now, we come to سَيَقُولُ السُّفَهَاءُ مِنَ النَّاسِ مَا وَلَّاهُمْ عَنْ قِبْلَتُهُمُ الَّتِي كَانُوا عَلَيْهَا قُلْ لِلَّهِ الْمَشْرِقُ وَالْمَغْرِبِ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ إِلَى صِرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ So, Muslims At the time that Muslims were in Mecca, when at the very beginning of the Islamic message, they prayed like other Arabs towards Mecca. Mecca, towards the Kaaba. However, the Kaaba was After the Isra al Mi'raj, Muslims direct the Qibla becomes towards Bayt al Maqdus. Now, there is Bayt al Maqdus uh, as a um, the the, the there are very interesting reports about why Muslims, direct the, instead of praying towards the Kaaba, they start praying towards Bayt al-Maqdus after the Isra al-Maraj. And the gist of it is the, the consistent problem that Muslims had with the fact that the Kaaba was, had become a, um, literally a carnival of idols, both inside the Kaaba and outside the Kaaba, and even in the area of the Safa al Marwa, which had become sort of a bazaar for, for, uh, the sale of idols and various rituals that and after the hijra muslims continue praying towards bayt al-maqdus for about a year some reports say 12 months some reports say 14 months some reports say 16 months uh whatnot and then the and then comes Allah's revelation, Allah's command to pray towards Mecca again. And as you would expect, the polemics that Muslims are confronted with at the time was, well, you say that your creed is the creed of Moses, is the creed of Jesus. So why is it that you stop praying towards Jerusalem and now you are praying towards Mecca again? And notice that the Quran anchors this in reminding Jews and Christians of what what I uh, the the um, 
the narrative that is mentioned in in the Bible itself, the uh, the Malhama, the narrative of the priest one that it, that is to that was pre, uh, uh, foretold in the Bible, or the Messiah that is foretold in the Torah, and that the genesis of the message is Ibrahim and Ibrahim's dedication of the site to the entire creed that Ibrahim stood for. But, but, a reminder at the same time that praying towards Jerusalem or praying towards Kaaba had nothing to do with issues of political considerations or political alliances. Because the critics of Muslims at the time said, well, oh, yeah, they, they used to pray towards Jerusalem because they were hoping that Christians and Jews would join Islam but now that Muhammad despaired that, that in fact that they will become Muslims, they went back to praying towards the Kaaba. And Allah's response to this, لِلَّهِ الْمَشْرِقُ وَالْمَغْرِبِ that you missed the point that in fact wherever Allah is, is ever present everywhere, whether east or west, it is all directed towards Allah. Allah doesn't exist in a specific sacred space as was theologically believed in um, at the time. But and that this has nothing to do with whether there's a hope of co-opting you or no, because it, it, whether you pray towards Jerusalem or not is not what's going to convince Jews to be Muslim or not Muslim. That's not the, the, the issue that in one way or the other is going to, and it was understood from the time that Muslims migrated to Medina that they were still, the Ansar and the Muhajirin were still doing Hajj. I mean, they were still going visiting the Kaaba and circumambulating around the Kaaba. And as we will see in Surah Al-Baqarah itself, there's references to that. Because it, it is not, those of them that were powerful enough and influential enough to be able to go back to Mecca and visit the Kaaba and leave unharmed did so. So the place of the Kaaba from the beginning to after the Hijrah was firmly anchored. It, it never wavered. And the belief of the Arab belief that this Kaaba was built by Ibrahim and Ismail was pre-Islamic, existed before Islam. So it is not like, you know, it suddenly the Muslims become aware of the importance of the Kaaba when they start praying towards the Kaaba.
So a, a sort of a, an attempt to explain the events on the base of alliances doesn't make sense. Okay. But what then follows is this most central area وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَنَّاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا لِتَكُونُوا شُهَدَاءَ عَلَى النَّاسِ وَيَكُونَ الرَّسُولُ شَهِيدًا عَلَيْكُمْ شَهِيدًا وَمَا جَعَنَّا الْقِبْلَةَ الَّتِي كُنْتُمْ عَلَيْهَا إِلَّا لِنَعْلَمَ مَنْ يَتَّبِعُ الرَّسُولَ مِمَّنْ يَنْقَلِبُ عَلَى عَقِبَيْهِ وَإِنْ كَانَتْ لَكَبِيرَةً إِلَّا عَلَى الَّذِينَ هَدَى اللَّهُ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضَيَّعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ بِالنَّاسِ لَرَعُوفُ الرَّحِيمِ Let's do the... قَدْ نَرَى تَقَلُّبَ وَشِكَ فِي السَّمَاءِ فَلُنُوَلِّيَنَّكَ قِبْلَةً تَرْضَاهَا فَوَلِّي وَشَكَ شَطْرَ الْمَجْدِدِ الْحَرَامِ وحيث ما كنتم فولوا وجوهكم شطرة وإن الذين أوتوا الكتاب لا يعلمون أنه الحق من ربهم وما الله بغافل عما يعملون So first 144 When the Quran says and the people who received the book know that this is the truth from the Lord this goes back to that issue that we, we talked about is the Quranic a charge that they knew of the Mawhama Muhammad that was predicted the Messiah or the the messenger who is the brother of or from the brother of Ishaq that we've talked about um, that a reference even in the Bible that we have in circulation today, there are, uh, like the Bible of Barnabas, which is non-canonical, and which was also corrupted, even the copies that survived of it, there are many different versions, many different um, manuscripts of the Gospel of Barnabas that have been retrieved, that have even a, a more explicit reference to the Mahama in Aramaic or the the um, so when the Quran says that they know that this is the truth it, it the reference is they know that it is the Kaaba which was built by which was built by the Prophet Ibrahim and Ismail and that that is the anchor of monotheism so that's that's a charge a historical charge that we've talked about. Okay. But that image, قَدْ مَرَى تَقَلُّبَ وَجْهِكَ فِي السَّمَاءِ The Prophet ﷺ, from the time of the Hijrah, is aware, I mean, the, the Muhajirun all have a special place for the Kaaba. They all know. But as we discovered, even the Ansar used to, or the Medinians, the native Medinians, 
used to travel and they also had a, a clear understanding of the place of the Kaaba in their pre-Islamic Arab culture. In fact, we know that Medinians before Islam, the Ahli Yathrib before Islam, used to when used to have their own beliefs about performing pilgrimage. So among the things that they did is that when they would go to visit the Kaaba to the for blessings and worship, they would not visit the Safa al Marwa, and we'll come to that. They also believe that if after visiting the Kaaba, that um, after visiting the Kaaba, after uh, visiting Mecca, they had a superstitious belief that they cannot enter their homes from the front door. That right after the Hajj, you are only allowed to enter your home from a back door, and we'll come to that. So, both the Muhajirun and the Ansar are their gaze is focused towards the Kaaba, towards the Maqam. And the consistent question that they are asking the Prophet is, is our praying towards Jerusalem, meaning that does it mean that there is a new set of beliefs about the maqam. So is it now, what precisely is the place of Bayt al-Aqsa or Masjid al-Aqsa in, in, in relation to the centrality of the Kaaba as the cornerstone of maqam Ibrahim? And the Prophet doesn't have an answer to that. He knows that the Isra or Mi'raj, his gaze was turned towards uh, Masjid al-Aqsa. His gaze was turned towards that spot. And that when Muslims started praying towards Jerusalem, the Meccans scoffed at it and said, well, and in fact, it was, it was, um, and I, I didn't talk about this before, but that was among the, the tribulations of an Isra wal Maraj, is that the Meccans said, look, you know, Muhammad is coming with something alien to us. Uh, he doesn't even pray towards what our forefathers used to pray. And that was a further test because some left Islam because they didn't believe in Islam and Maraj, but some left Islam because they thought that now Muslims are praying towards Jerusalem, which means they broke off with the tradition of Al-Maqam, Maqam Ibrahim, that this is a, a faith that belonged to those weird Arabs who are, who are Jewish or Christian, uh, but not among the Ahnaf or anything like the Ahnaf or the Sabi'ah because the Sabi'ah also prayed towards Mecca. So 
what's interesting is that that trial, although the questions keep reoccurring, even after the Hijra, well, so we we long to visit the Kaaba. We long to to go around the Kaaba, uh, but we pray toward Jerusalem. And why is that? And the Prophet ﷺ doesn't have an answer. And look at the way the Allah describes the Prophet's crisis. He, it's like he is raising his face to the sky, to the heavens, and talking to Allah. And Allah knows what is in his heart. Allah knows that the Prophet is missing Mecca. Fully understand what the Quran itself is saying about the Maqam Ibrahim, but he can't answer his people as to why we are now facing towards Jerusalem. So before he is told that you can face towards the Kaaba again, he, Muslims are reminded twice in Surah Al-Baqarah that don't forget that regardless of whether you face it's it's a matter it's a technical matter that belongs with Allah and Allah alone but spiritually morally what you must keep in mind is that Allah is everywhere and that the direction of prayer is a separate question from the moral space the, the moral question of sacred space that sacred space is the entire earth and not as we said last halakha not in a church not in a synagogue not even in a mosque not etc etc which as i call as i discussed last time is this egalitarian revolution in the way muslims thought about sacred space because it was completely unprecedented and completely unsettling And that is why it is Allah described It was a challenge, that question of the Qibla and the whole entire question of sacred space and that sacred space is not, not here, not there, but etc. This was a real difficult challenge, except for those who are truly guided. Because I am in uh, uh, among the the you know because we don't study our history, so I've gotten questions from Muslims who have read Islamophobic material, and of course you know they come and say, well you know isn't it true that the, the Prophet they they used to Muslims first pray towards Jerusalem, but then when etc., then they change, and this means that. Uh, you know, just the, 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 the off-the-cuff type of conclusions that come from lack of reading, lack of study, lack of investigation. So that's why I'm, I'm covering this material.
Okay. And that is also why when Allah says, because when Muslims were told to pray towards Jerusalem, there were those who said, oh, no, that, that's a deal breaker. Praying towards Jerusalem, that means we, we're not oriented towards the house of Ibrahim. We're not going to follow that. Okay. But, we go to وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسْطًا لِتَكُونُوا شُهَدَاءَ عَلَى النَّاسِ Okay. So, and so we've made you a أُمَّة وَسْط a, 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 uh, you, could you can translate this as Uh, we will need to be a community of the middle of the middle way. Yeah, you can translate this as a middle way, um, literally middle way, right? And one level of meaning is that you you are. Well, let's for let's let's forget that. Okay. So the question is, Ummatan Wasata, we've made you a a middle way. Now, what is the middle way being referred to here? Because to say a middle, you have to have two points, and then you're the middle of it, and changing the Qibla from Jerusalem to the Kaaba is, these are two points, Mecca and the Quds, two points. There is no middle here. There's no three-way and then you're the middle of it. So what is the middle way that is being referred to? And especially when it then says, So that you bear witness. So the literalists who attempted said, well, it means that you are, you don't believe, you are unlike the excessiveness of the Jews who who believed in a chosen people and in Aziz and who is Aziz is an interesting question as, as some sects said that Aziz is God's son um, or a or a progeny of God in some form although that's a it, it was a particular sects of Jews. Anyway, and Christians who deify Jesus, and you are in the middle way in the sense that you reject 
these two fanatic systems of belief either in its chosen people or in the deified prophet and so you're in immoderate immoderation between the excessiveness of Jews and uh, Christians but this still the question that remained as and this is discussed in a lot of commentaries, is that, well, but if that is the point, then why does it follow, and it says, Catholic, and so we've made you into a nation in, of a middle-weighed nation, or a nation of the middle, so that you bear witness. So, And this gives or unleashes a, a discussion about what a wasat is, what that middle is. So, among the most repeated is al wasat is. A word that connotes an adl, al fadl, or al khair. So some said that al wasat al is al khair, what is good. That between the non, the the uh, uh, scantity in something and the plentitude of something is the right amount of something, and that's al khair. That's what goodness is. An adl between justice is always the accomplishing the equilibrium of something. The equilibrium between possibilities of inequality. Al-Fadl, those who argued that Al-Wasat is a state of Al-Fadl, argued that Wasat is shaykh. is a, a, a word that connotes wisdom, hikmah, and that if you say, for instance, it means that I have attained a true understanding of this matter. We don't need to resolve the debate between those who said it's khair and those who said al-adl and those who said al-fadl. But we can reconcile all these views in Ummatul Wasat is a nation that is supposed to be and of course, because of our, is a nation, and, and here the, the, our understanding of Millat Ibrahim and our understanding of the covenant must come in to shed light on our understanding of Ummat al-Wasat that will bear witness upon people. Because shuhada ala nas to bear witness upon people. And then the Prophet will be a witness upon us. 
and at the basic level you'd say well you have to be a people of righteousness but the affairs of people shifts and changes and bear with me because conceptually I, I want to communicate this idea to you uh, without confusion the affairs of people are constantly changing and if you are to bear a witness upon people and you are to bear witness representing the values that words like al-fadl al-khayr al-adl represent then you must always embody what is as when Allah tells Ibrahim the unjust can't receive my covenant that you must always bear witness vis-a-vis in light of the changing circumstances of people the position that represents the most or their position that embodies what is just, what is fair, what is equitable, what is good. So, if you anchor yourself in a set of didactic laws, and you bear witness on the on the if you bear witness on the basis of these laws and nothing more then it is quite possible that you are no longer bearing witness upon what is wasat but in fact, you could be bearing witness from a skewed position. So let me give an example of this. Let's assume we live in an age in which, just to simplify things, this is an age in which people, the main means of transportation are donkeys and horses. And in order for donkeys and horses to move around, they need a certain set of circumstances. Let's say that among the primary staple of these donkeys or horses are uh, certain things like the pit of dates and the roads have to be paved in a certain way so that these donkeys and horses it minimizes 
friction to their ankles and, and, and the type of things that could hurt animals. And in relation to the transportation and the movement of these donkeys and horses, there has to be a system where the defecation of these donkeys and horses don't end up being left in the street causing diseases and etc. etc. And you come upon this scene and you are bearing witness from a perspective of Wasatiya. It will absolutely be absurd to start bearing witness as to as if donkeys and horses are not a material part of the picture. So for instance, if you are come and you bear witness upon what is needed for people to move using skateboards, you are not coming from a perspective of Wasatiya. You are coming from a perspective of absurdity. Your testimony has become absurd. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and says, وَجْعَنَّاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا Allah is, if, if wasat as commentators say that it is al-fadl wal-khayr wal-adl, then wasatiyah, and it is not simply that you are saying Jews are wrong, Christians are, are wrong, Muslims are right, because most commentators rejected that. But wasatiyah is to embody certain moral values. That you commit yourself to being anchored in al-ilm al-daruri, in the necessary knowledge, in the hikmah of the age. But, And subhanAllah, the one who noticed this is the Razi. How can you bear witness? How can you bear witness? A witness in or for someone to testify, their testimony must be heard. Right? So I will testify. There has to be a forum for my testimony to be heard. In order for my testimony to be relevant, I must know what I'm talking about. So if the judge says, well, what do you think this town needs? And the judge is talking about, about horses and donkeys. And I say, well, what's needed is for the streets to be flooded with water. The judge will say, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about something completely different. Get out of here. So your testimony has to be relevant. But also, your testimony cannot be irrelevant in a different way. And that is because you're not important enough to testify or be heard. In other words, that your testimony cannot be simply suppressible. Well, oh, your opinion doesn't matter. 
So, when Allah says your ummah is there to bear a moral charge, the moral charge is to testify as to wasati al wasat. And the wasat, as we said, is al khair, wal fadl, wal adl. So you are committed to testifying to certain moral values. But these moral values must address the changing circumstances of people. So if I am bearing, if I am talking to you and I start telling you uh, the world, you, um, you know, as what Grace mentioned earlier, you know, the world confronts the problem of children and kids being addicted to video games. And my testimony comes in and talks about whether playing with dolls or human humanoid figures is halal or haram. That's not wasatiyah. That's irrelevancy. You failed right away. You are not Ummah Wasat. You are an irrelevant Ummah. But B, what if no one cares to hear you because you're not even important enough to be heard? So you come and say, you know, the Chinese, their testimony matters because they have strength and power. Americans, their testimony matters. The Russians, their testimony matters. And then Muslims come, the Chinese are basically al Khilafa. It's a bunch of different provinces, whether by force or by choice. They're all together representing this one big nation that we call China, which really encompasses many different nations with different histories. The United States is a big khilafa of 50 states. Russia is a big khilafa of its own states. And Muslims come in with their little, little, you know, duailat, their little insignificant mini states. And they start saying things. And everyone's reaction to them, you're irrelevant. Oh, you, you guys, okay, you know, you guys will give you a bunch of rock stars, uh, pop artists to go perform in, in uh, Riyadh and uh, keep you happy. And other than that, buy a soccer team, buy a yacht and get lost, you know. Uh, other than that, we'll send a bunch of, bunch of attractive Ukrainian girls to entertain you in uh, your little metropolis in Dubai or Abu Dhabi and uh, get lost. Where is that? Where, then, then how meaningful does it become to talk about shahada? It becomes entirely meaningless. The challenge is the challenge of hikmah, because in order to bear witness, you must embody a set of values. So when someone comes to you and says what is important, is that to pray and to, you know, just make it to heaven, make it to Jannah, brother, and that's it. And and make sure your, your family makes it to Jannah. I told them, how about the testimony? How about the testimony? 
or someone comes and tells you, oh, you know, Ummah, what Ummah? The Muslims are just a bunch of, and what Khilafah, and what unity, and what, it, tell them, well, how is our testimony going to be relevant? How is it going to be significant? And they'll say, well, you know, it, 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 this is so unrealistic because, you know, say, I wasn't charged by Allah to be realistic. I was charged to testify with, as to what the truth is. Realism or lack of realism is a separate matter. What I must testify to is what is right and what is wrong. But it is we human beings who create the reality and the basis of what we believe ultimately to be right and what is wrong. When we forget that these are imperatives, eventually they lose all the importance and they're no longer imperatives because of the situation that we've created with our own hands. Okay. What time is it? Well, uh, okay. It's 9.07 and I have to teach class tomorrow. Um, and this is a very heavy point. So I'm going to let you um, leave you to reflect on it and ponder it till Saturday, inshallah. And this is a very good point to stop. Um, I will see, inshallah, all of you Saturday. I have absolutely nothing to say because this was too short. I'm lodging my complaint. I wasn't ready. <laughs> I didn't prepare. I didn't take notes to like close. And you just told me not to thank you. So, okay, to be continued. Um, this was, it doesn't feel right not to thank you. Thank no, 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 no. you. It was wonderful. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> and um, so excited to um, come back on Saturday, inshallah. I know the days pass quickly, so I'll just have to sit with a cliffhanger inshallah thank you so much for joining us mafaz don't go away and inshallah we will see you again on saturday inshallah assalamu alaikum assalamu alaikum